All right, so show of hands here. How many of you, uh, raise them high so I can see them. How many of you have ever heard a sermon series in the book of Judges? Okay, a few of you. All right, Robin, you're teaching next week. Uh, Tim, you're up the week after that. There aren't many, right? And, uh, and it's kind of an unfamiliar book. I, I think of the book of Judges being in the crispy part of your Bible. Um, <laughs> You know, the part people haven't read very much. And yet, if you read the book of Judges, the one thing you won't do is fall asleep. I mean, it is interesting. And uh, in fact, the story we're going to look at next week, one of the stories is about this guy named Ehud who uh, stabs this really fat king in the gut. And it's this perfect story to tell your kids, right? I, I Like, totally, you got to do this this week, is read Judges 3 with your kids and uh, get them maybe to act it out. And um, it's just, it's super fun. We... My kids this morning were still, you know, they were coming up to me, you know, and I'm going, what are you saying, you know? Uh, but we're just laughing and having a great time. And, and, and there's, so there's funny stuff. There's also just really weird stuff and, and really some horrific stuff. The book of Judges, most of the reason you haven't heard much about it or read it or whatever is because it's so dark. And at least initially, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of hope in it. And it's not super feel good. Why would we study this? Are, are we just trying to be obscure and ironic, like hipsters? And the... No, no, we're not hipsters. If, you, you know, if you're a hipster, you're welcome here, but that's, that's not really our thing. Um, why? Why would we do this? Well, a couple of reasons. One is the book of Judges is as relevant today as the day it was written. Now, there's going to be lots of things that aren't going to be easily understood. There's going to be names that are really hard to pronounce. And there's going to be uh, geography and kind of political realities that we don't really understand. And there's going to be some cultural gaps that don't make sense to us. So there's lots that's different from our day. But the core message of the book of Judges is as relevant today as the day it was written. Here's what the key verse, here's the key idea of the book of Judges. Here's what it is. It comes from Judges 17.6 and then it's repeated the exact same way word for word in 2125, which is the last verse of the book. Here it is. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that sounds like, that sounds like modern... America, that sounds like life in the West. I mean, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Now, we say it a little differently, right? We say it this way. I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, and no one can tell me not to. And then we might add, if we're especially civil, we might add to the end of it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. No one should tell me not to. What is that? That is saying, I want to do what's right in my own eyes. And when a whole culture embraces that mantra, which we have, you have our culture today and amazingly how similar to some of the things we'll see in the book of Judges. So it's incredibly relevant. That's one reason to study it. The second reason is that the book of Judges is a gut check for the people of God. We're going to read some things in the book of Judges that are horrible. We're going to read about murder. We're going to read about child sacrifice. We're going to read about the decay of a society and the morals and all of that stuff. And we're going to read about all that. And do you know who's responsible for all of it? 
the people of God. It isn't the world out there. It isn't the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the termites and all the other ites that are out there. They're not the ones responsible for it in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, it's the people of God. One commentator on the book of Judges has called, he said one of the major ideas in the book of Judges is that it's the Canaanization of Israel. That Israel was called to be a light to the nation so that the people of Canaan would become more like them. And instead of the Israelization of Canaan, there's the Canaanization of Israel. There's the worldlyization of the church. I know that's not a word, but you get the point. And it's interesting to me because we could look around and we could look at social decay and we could look at moral decay and we could look at all these different things in our culture and we'd be right to say that they are not uh, what they were. But what judges forces us to do is to say, but what about us as the people of God? It holds the mirror up to our faces and says, what about us? Have we actually imbibed more of the spirit of our age than we realize? Are we actually shaped more by the world's values than we think? So I think it's an incredibly relevant book and an incredibly thought-provoking book. It is gonna be a serious book. It's gonna cause us to reflect and cause us to consider. It's gonna challenge us in some points. There will be some parts that don't feel real good. But I think like a good surgeon, God will use his word to root out the bad parts in our soul and to make us more like Christ. So that's what we're gonna do. There's always gonna be more content uh, in, in this, these books than I am gonna have time to be able to bring to you. I'm gonna always, each week, try to bring the best stuff. I'm gonna do my best. Uh, but at the same time, I realize there's more lessons, more applications. As I read commentaries and other things, there's things that I won't be able to bring into this. And so I'm creating a resource for you if you're interested in this. Uh, you can put the website up there. Uh, tinyurl.com slash judges series. If you go there and you subscribe, uh, you can subscribe to an email that I'm gonna send every week that has just some kind of stuff that didn't make it into the message but you might still find interesting. Uh, it's gonna be a place where if you have questions about uh, things that we talk about here, you can reply to those emails and I can include some of those answers in the emails that go out. So uh, it's just for those of you who want it. I didn't wanna spam everybody who doesn't want this but if you're interested in that, if you want it, go to that website and you can sign up to receive that content. Uh, I'd be happy to send it to you. All right, well, before we get into the book of Judges itself, we've got to kind of understand where Judges fits in the story of the Bible. Uh, try to make sense of where is this. We don't want to just jump in and assume we kind of know where we are, all right? So the, the book of or the Bible begins with the book of Genesis. And the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. It's called the Pentateuch or the Torah, right? So Genesis is about the beginning of the world. There's a number of events that are described, the creation and fall and flood and the Tower of Babel. And then there's a number of people that are explored. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the end is Joseph. And at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, the descendants of Jacob or Israel are in Egypt, and they're about 70 strong. And then you turn the page into the book of Exodus, and in the book of Exodus, they've multiplied. They're now uh, close to two million people, and they've become a threat to the people of Egypt, and so the Egyptians have enslaved them. And uh, hundreds of years have passed, they're enslaved, uh, they don't have freedom, they don't really know the Lord very well. And so God calls this man named Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right? Maybe you've read, you know, watched The Prince of Egypt or The Ten Commandments, you know, the documentaries about this. Um, anyway, that, that's what that is. And so Exodus, the book of Exodus is about an exodus, 
It's about a rescue. It's about the people of God being delivered from Egypt. So that's what Exodus is. And then when you get to the next book, the next book is Leviticus. And Leviticus is the part of your Bible when you do the reading in a year plan where you quit. And uh, what it is, is it's, it's how to live. It's filled with all these laws, all these instructions, all these very detailed things about what it is to be the people of God. Um, it's important to notice this, by the way, just pause real fast. Leviticus, Leviticus comes after Exodus, not the other way around. Sometimes people think, oh, the Old Testament, it says if you just do all the rules, then God will rescue you. No, that's not what it says. The Old Testament has the same story as the new, which is that God rescues his people, and then he says, here's how to live. But that's what Leviticus says. And then you get to the book of Numbers, and the book of Numbers is describing the people uh, of Israel who are now wandering in the desert. And God has said, I want to take you out of this this place in Egypt and into this new promised land, and here's the land, and these spies go to check it out, but they don't really trust God, they don't really believe that they can take it, and so God says, all right, I'm going to let this generation wander. And they wander around in the desert for 40 years, don't get to go into the promised land. Then, the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of this Pentateuch written by Moses. This book of Deuteronomy is really about, it's like three sermons and an appendix that Moses gives right before the people are about to enter into the new land. And it's a reminder how to live. Uh, The word Deuteronomy means second law. It's like a repeat in some ways of the book of Leviticus. So, he says, this is how you're supposed to live as you go into the land, now go into the land. And that takes you then to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is this book of conquest. It's a book about the people of God going into uh, the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Hittites and all those different people and eliminating them from the land and inhabiting a new promised land. Now, I don't have time to get into this altogether, but it raises a lot of really interesting questions about how is it that God could command Israel to go wipe all these people out? There's some really interesting questions there. A couple of things just to point out briefly is that uh, it it wasn't an ethnic cleansing, like a genocide thing, kill all these people of this race. It wasn't like that because there actually were some people God commanded them to spare. It also wasn't an imperialistic thing where the people of Israel were supposed to keep having this land that would eventually, you know, the world of Israel kind of thing. It was a contained thing. What it was really about was purging idolatry. See, the people in that land were idol worshipers. They didn't worship the one true God. And because of that, they did some really, really horrible things. There's actually a story here in the book of Judges about this king who cut off the toes and thumbs of all the people that he conquered. And and you read, as you read about the practices of the Canaanites, that they did things like human sacrifice and even child sacrifice. The kinds of things that that God goes, that's deplorable to me. You need to expel that kind of practice from your midst. And so in Joshua, the people are to go in and to conquer these people and to cast them out and to destroy them and to create a space where they're not gonna be tempted by their idolatry. Well, they mostly do the job, uh, not entirely. And then at the book, at the end of the book of Judges, or at the book of Joshua in chapter 24, uh, there's this, uh, what I would describe as the last night of camp moment. Have you ever go to church camp? Go to summer camp or student camp, right? The last night of church camp, what happens there? Well, the girls are all crying. (laughs) And the half of them are like, you're like, why are you crying? You're like, I don't know, but everyone's crying. (laughs) 
right? And so girls are crying and, and everyone's going, oh, I wanna be serious about the Lord, right? And, and that's what the leaders have called them to. The leaders have said, hey, we've been up here on this mountain and we've been in this place where you know, we've had nothing to focus on except God and now we're gonna go back into the world. We wanna honor him and we wanna live for him and yeah, 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 and, right, and that's what we're charging them up for, right? And so everyone gets serious about that and they go, all right, I'm gonna, you know, they don't do this anymore, but in the day it was like, I'm gonna throw away all my bad CDs. You know, and sometimes you'd actually throw it like in the fire and it would crackle and, and uh, you know, you do that or, or, or the guy's going, I'm going to break up with her when I get home. I, I know I shouldn't be in this relationship and, right, and all this stuff. And, and yet, if, if you have been around those moments for a while, you start to get cynical. You start to go, really? You're not going to change. You know, I actually have this friend who was a youth pastor for many years and he had so many of these moments, he got so cynical about it that he actually instructed, uh, the, the, he instructed this the last night of camp and Josh, don't do this at winter camp next week. But what he, what he did was he said, all right, after everyone shares the last night about how they're gonna commit to follow the Lord, everyone in unison, we're gonna say, we'll see How's that for a grace-based, encouraging place, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna honor my parents. We'll see, you know? And, and yet, that's a little bit of what Joshua does in, in the end of Joshua, right? He, he had said, some of you have a verse from Joshua 24 in your house. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right, and the people go, yeah, we're gonna do it, yeah, we're gonna do it. And then he goes, we'll see. I don't think you're gonna. And they go, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna. And then we hit the book of Judges. So all of that is kind of what leads up to this. And in the book of Judges, as in chapter one, what you find is that Israel still has this kind of what you might call a mop-up campaign where there's still some of these idolatrous people that they've allowed to live and they need to kind of get them out of the land. And so chapter one describes their really lack of success in doing that mission and chapter two, we'll look at, describes why they weren't successful. And we'll see that really quickly, they went from, yeah, we're gonna follow the Lord, to no. So, if you have your Bible, Judges uh, chapter one, verse one, the way this will work is I'll read and teach through a few parts of it and then summarize other parts. But we'll uh, start verse one. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, one more thing, background, just to understand this, is at this point, the nation of Israel is divided up into 12 tribes. It's sort of a commonwealth, or you might think of it like the 13 colonies of the United States, right? Where they're, they're connected, and there's relationship, and there's a lot they have in common, but there's not a centralized government. There's still some kind of uh, autonomy that exists within each tribe, but they're, but they're loosely connected. So there's these 12 tribes, and the people go to the Lord and say, who should, who should be first to go fight off these Canaanites? The people that live in this area. Verse two, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then verse three has our first compromise of the book. Didn't take long. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. You get the compromise? Hey God, who should we send? Judah. Great, Simeon, come with me. <laughs> I didn't say Simeon, right? 
And, and yet you start to see there's this compromise. There's this half-heartedness. There's, well, yeah, Lord, that sounds good, but here's what sounds good to me. And already they start to compromise. But the Lord still grants them success. Verse four, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Then the rest of chapter one, the next uh, chunk here, really talks about uh, Judah's campaign. Uh, Judah gets the most time and the most attention in this. Um, and they're fairly successful, but not entirely successful. Look at verse 19. It says, and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So he, he, he tried, but he just, he couldn't quite do it. And one of the questions that that brings up that's going to happen all throughout the rest of this text we're going to look at today is was the problem for Israel that they couldn't or that they wouldn't? Or was it maybe that they wouldn't and eventually they got to the point where they couldn't? Either way, they aren't fully successful. And then the rest of chapter one lists in descending order, you know, from most successful to least successful, and, and you just see it's not great. Look at verse 21. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 27. Uh, Manasseh, this is another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shon. Verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And then finally, verse 34 says, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. Now the people of Dan, that was one of the tribes. So they're, they're, they're not winning, not winning, not winning, not winning. And then finally, the last one listed, Dan, is actually on the defensive as the nations attack them. They are not successful. And the indication is not that they couldn't, but that they wouldn't. There's a number of places actually, verse 28, uh, verse 30, uh, verse 33, that says that they actually, instead of expelling these people from the land, they brought them into forced labor. So they were strong enough to do it, they just didn't. And in fact, in chapter two, verse two, that's what God says, you have not obeyed my voice. Well, why? What happened? Why weren't they successful? Why couldn't it work? What took place between the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges and this early part? Why? Well, read verse, chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, so now we're going back to Joshua, we're going back to the people of the time of Joshua. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each into his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So you get that? As long as Joshua's alive, as long as the elders who were part of that whole thing are alive, everyone's serving the Lord. Verse eight, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Here's a key verse. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What happened? Why weren't they successful? Why weren't they obedient fully to the Lord? Verse 10, 
because there arose another generation who didn't know the Lord or the work he'd done. As long as Joshua was alive, they were faithful. The generation after that, faithful. The generation after that, just two generations removed, faithless. What does that kind of faithlessness look like? Well, it says in verse 11, here's what it says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals, by the way, Baal is a word that means God or Lord. Um, Only, this is really key, only the people of Israel believed there was one God over everything. Every other group of people here believed in a polytheistic thing. There's a God of this and a God of that and a God of that. And so the reason it says Baals, plural, is because there were a lot of Baals. There were a lot of gods. Uh, It talks about uh, in verse 14, the Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was like the female version of the God. So there's all of this worship going on of other gods. Verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The Baals and the Ashtaroth, uh, just to help you understand this, were mostly related to farming. So Baal was often considered a storm god. If you wanted rain, you had to do some stuff for him. And and Asherah was a fertility goddess. And so you had to do different things to worship her. And there's all that sort of things. And the people of Israel, they're new to farming, right? They've been enslaved. This is the first time they've had their land. And when they don't quite drive out all these people, they're going, hey, could you give us some farming advice? And the advice starts with, hey, you you need to worship the one that controls the rain. And then instead of saying, well, Yahweh controls the rain. They go, well, maybe we should hedge our bets. Maybe we should just play it safe. Maybe, maybe these local gods, we should give them some attention. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. It's interesting in the book of Judges that the people who Israel copies eventually conquer them, right? They, they worship the gods of the Philistines, they're conquered by the Philistines. They worship the gods of the Midianites, they're conquered by the Midianites. Kind of an irony there. But God's faithful, and God's merciful. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. What mercy of God, right? They didn't, they, they, they didn't deserve it. They hadn't really changed, and yet God in his mercy raises up people to deliver them. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the day of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. That word groaning is used over and over in the account in Exodus. That these people who are enslaved and oppressed and are hurting are groaning and God hears their groan. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn 
ways. What's going on here? Well, what's being described is, uh, is an introduction to really the whole book. The whole book is going to follow the pattern that we just looked at, and it's a pattern of a cycle that keeps happening. And really, it's kind of a downward spiral because it just gets worse and worse and worse every time. So let me show you the cycle, and uh, you'll see this as we go through the book. The first element in the cycle is sin, sin. It'll say the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They went after other gods. That's their sin. Then the second part is servitude. God says, okay, you want other gods? I'm going to oppress you with the people who serve those gods. And those people come and they attack Israel and Israel is subject to them and it's bad for Israel. And so Israel says, this isn't good. And so supplication is part three. That's a fancy word for help. They cry out to God, God, we need you. God, save us. God, we're sorry. And God does. Number four, salvation. He rescues. He sends a judge. He delivers them. And as long as that judge is alive, you have number five, silence or rest. Things are good. And then as soon as that judge dies, it all starts over again. So let me just show you a, a case study, right? If you ever play a game, you play a card game with your kids or you know, you're teaching them a new board game, right? You, what you do at first, you say, hey, let's play a practice hand. So I just show you how this game works. That's kind of what the author of Judges does. He says, let me show you just in summary this cycle and how it works. So that's the story of Othniel in uh, chapter three, verse seven. Here's just a look at it. It starts with sin. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So that's the sin. Then the servitude. Therefore, the ang anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served him eight years. And then you have the supplication, the crying out. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, then you have salvation, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And then you have the last part, rest. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And then look at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the cycle starts over. Does that cycle sound familiar to you? I'm gonna do what I want, when I want, with who I want. No one can tell me not to, okay. And then at some point you realize that didn't go well. I need God's help. Uh, you know, I got this gambling debt. I'm in a hole. I'm in a relationship that I should not be in. God, help me. Rescue me. And God in his mercy does. And then things go well for a while and you kind of forget and you go, you know what, I want to do what I want. And the cycle just starts all over. So that's the introduction to the book of Judges. That sort of sets the table for what we're going to look at. What we're going to look at over the next uh, six weeks is a number of these cycles this spiral getting worse and worse and worse as the people of God fail to honor God as king. So that's where we're gonna go. What do we learn from this though? What, what should we pull out from this particular introduction that we've looked at? Well, I've got three things. The first one is this. We must help the next generation want to love the Lord. L look at verse 10. 
There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The root problem here is that the, the, the faith was not passed on. And get this, faith, trust in the Lord, it's not a genetic quality. It's not inherited automatically. Because your parents are faithful Christians does not mean you will be. It's the kind of thing everyone needs to have an experience of knowing the Lord. Everyone has to have an experience of knowing the work that he's done. That has to happen personally. Each generation needs that. And, and I love the, the phrasing there, we must help the next generation want to love the Lord. Do they want to? Right? This is not saying, though these things are true, we must help the next generation realize that they should love the Lord. Yeah, they should. We, we must help the next generation feel like they ought to love the Lord. Yeah, they ought to. But don't you want to see a next generation that wants to know the Lord? That sees the, the faith and the love and the kindness and the sacrifice and the generosity of their parents and the people in their church and goes, 